You are listening to White Atlantic Weird, the podcast that investigates parapsychology and the unexplained to find out why people believe weird things. I'm your host, Kian, and as usual, I'm recording from the White Atlantic Weird cabin, somewhere in the depths of deepest, darkest Essex. Well, you find me when it is early spring here in the cabin. There have been a lot of storms recently. Anyone living in Essex or indeed anywhere in the UK or Ireland will know that we've had two rather intense storms breeze through within the space of about a week. So the whole area around me, the forest around me, is looking a little bit tired and sorry at the moment. We've had a lot of branches come down. We've had to cut a lot of trees down just in case uh, some of them might come down and damn it and hurt somebody uh, as these storms rage. However, there is something nice to report, which is that it does seem like we have a bit of early spring coming through as well. So there are some flowers blooming as I speak. I can see them out the window. Uh, It does seem to be a bit of a pattern at the moment that they're coming out earlier and earlier every year. Uh, If you are of a mind to see it that way, you might interpret this as being evidence of changing climate, of course. Um, All similar things that are happening include animals that are coming out of torpor or even hibernation earlier. I myself saw bats this year as early as... Uh, I think it was the 10th of January, maybe the 15th of January. So again, a little bit earlier than you'd normally expect. The problem, of course, being that if animals or flowers come out earlier than they ought to because there is a an unseasonally warm spell, they can then be hit with a frost, as often does happen here, or even a snow as late as late February or March, and that can really do a lot of damage. If, of course, as most scientists do, you take seriously the idea that the climate is changing. Now, speaking of strange beliefs, of course, this is a podcast that generally does focus on fringe beliefs or strange beliefs, and we're going to try and do a set of new ones in a short mini-series that I'm imagining this episode will be the first one of. So traditionally, the podcast is focused on fringe beliefs in the form of uh, paranormal things. If uh, you take a quick look at our back catalogue, you'll see that those are the kind of things we've traditionally tackled. However, I am also fascinated by fringe political beliefs, which we have hit on occasionally, of course. We did that post-truth episode with my brother way back last year. But for this mini-series, we are going to focus on a particularly American style of fringe political belief, and we're going to focus on the American militia movement. Now, this comes right out of the foundation of America as a separate country to Britain and the British Empire, going right back to their separation from England. You have this sort of rugged individualism as part of their national self-image, uh, this, the, like the precursor almost to the American dream, the idea that, you know, anyone who works hard, regardless of who you are, can go out there, find a bit of space to do your own thing, grow your own food, build your own house and live your own best life. Of course, this is depending on a few things, depends on a particular political setup, which allows you to do so. It depends on the idea, according to some, of small government or at least a government that doesn't interfere. And it also requires a large country that has not been developed, which is why one of the reasons why I think this idea is so different in America than it is to Europe, which, of course, has been developed for a lot longer and in most parts has a much tighter and higher population level uh, for the amount of area that we have. 
So you've got this idea about going back to the foundation of America in the 1700s, that militias are an incredibly important part of their state and of their self-image, because we're looking at a time when they really didn't know if this whole revolution thing was going to stick. They really didn't know if the British were going to come over the hill and attack them and try and take back their lost colony uh, any day. And at that time, of course, they didn't have an official standing army. They only had militias, that is to say, groups of armed men who were not professionals and often only very loosely trained. And yet that's exactly who they would have been relying on if the British or indeed any other enemies had come back to fight them. So that's one of the reasons why the whole notion of bearing arms and having militias is literally written right into their constitution and forms a core part of their foundational beliefs. And I do think myself that their attitude towards uh, self-defense and weapons and all of this stemming right back to that time is indeed one of the things that makes their culture very different to ours here in Europe. Recently, during afternoon beers in London with my occasional co-host, Mr. Ali Keane, I mentioned that I had long wanted to dive into this topic with him. I wanted to talk about the unusual, uh, different political ideas that have led into this idea of the militias. And I also wanted to talk about the events that led to the resurgence of the militias uh, in the 1990s. That is, having lain dormant for many decades, having not been a very particularly powerful part of American society or American self-identity, they came back with a vengeance in the 1990s. Now, they came back with a vengeance in about 2008 as well, in huger numbers than ever, making them a very relevant topic in this day and age. Uh, I think down to two things. Number one, the worldwide economic downturn of the 2008 crash, but also the election, of course, of Barack Obama being the first African-American president and this whole notion of um, a changing identity in America. I think that was probably seen as a very powerful symbol of the country changing and uh, people took this in lots of very interesting and scary political uh, and conspiratorial directions, particularly, I think, people who didn't want to admit to themselves or perhaps uh, just say out loud what their real concerns were. And they tend to hide their concerns behind a shroud of sort of con uh, conspiratorial or or political concern. Hence, a lot of the criticism of Obama for doing things that ha are still happening today under a different regime, but which are not receiving the same amount of criticism, I feel, at least not from the same sources. In any case, uh, myself and Ali in this conversation discuss a key foundational event which led to that first resurgence of the militia movement in America, an event that we know today as Ruby Ridge. So get yourself a beverage, sit back for a slightly strange episode of White Atlantic Weird. This is American Militia, The Road to Ruby Ridge. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Way up where the bluegrass grows, way up in Idaho. Not another town for miles, you know. Many come to lose themselves, and I did so, and I did so, and I did so. When we came 
to the ends of the earth to find the God of the virgin birth. And the forces ranged against us remained like the walls of Babylon. And the forces ranged against us remained like the walls of Babylon. This is White Atlantic Weird. I'm your host, Kean. I'm here with Mr. Ali Keane from punk band The Scuts. And we are here to talk about... This, oh, this is our first episode of American Militia, The Road to Ruby Ridge. Ali, how are you doing? I am perfectly sober right now, thank you. We are coming to you from our militia camp, <laughs> yeah, somewhere in the south of England. We are sur- Imagine us surrounded by tins of uh, produce and many, many weapons. We are certainly surrounded by many tins of produce. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about like beans and uh, this one food is a, stuffs. This one is a produce of Holland, I think. It's a <laughs> uh, 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 Heineken. <laughs> it was a, what's, that, what's that a produce of? <laughs> well, in this episode, we are going to talk about the phenomena of the American militia movement. We're going to focus on the 1990s and the resurgence of this movement that happened at that time. I'm going to focus in particular on the story of the Siege of Ruby Ridge, and we're going to use that to hang various other elements from. We're going to talk about the birth of the movement, the rebirth of the movement. We're going to talk about some infamous characters such as Colonel Bo Greitz. We're going to talk about Rambo. We're going to talk about some some fun things, but also some fairly dark things. So consider that your warning. There's some rough stuff in this episode. The central siege that we're going to be talking about did involve... Uh, some pretty dark things. So if you're not someone who needs to hear about shootings of civilians and that sort uh, of thing, uh, consider this your warning. And uh, quickly onto lighter things, Ali, what are you drinking this evening? Among many things, many, many things. Uh, it is Gentleman Jack, um, a gift from a friend of mine called Libby. Indeed. Yeah. Shout out to Libby. Should she be listening? Thanks to the gentleman. <laughs> Thanks for the gentleman, Livy. <laughs> it's, <a laughs> it's a it's a form of Jack Daniels, which of course it, I did I did wonder if we could get a bourbon for this, but it's not technically a bourbon. Jack, of course, is a Tennessee whiskey, which is not strictly the same thing. What does it say on the end? Uh, yeah, no, no it's not the same thing technically. Uh, when uh, when we run out of that, we might move. I'll move. Be moving on to the Coors probably. I'll be moving back to Jack, the good old number seven. So. Ali, you've been good enough to do a little research for this episode. Um, did you know anything about militia before this? or? I mean, I'd heard of it in passing, um, but I hadn't read or seen anything in great depth. You know, I saw a couple of Vice documentaries on it. Yeah. They, did, um, they did a couple of good ones. I think one on the Arkansas militia and one on the Three Percenters. Is that the one where basically it's a bunch of people, well, like most militias, it's a bunch of people basically like LARPing as being military in the they woods. They all are. Yeah. They all are. They all are. I think I saw a great comment under um, the YouTube video where all these like, these way fat Americans are out there pretending to do push-ups and someone <laughs> called them Meal Team Six. <laughs> Classic. Well, Meal Team Six. <laughs> that is great. It's something I've been interested in, maybe for a little bit longer than you. I, I, it's something I've come across occasionally over the years, and I've always been utterly mystified by it because I think I lacked 
the cultural background to really understand what this was about because what I was seeing was people who you know were always describing themselves as patriot the militia movement in America yeah. is often described as the patriot movement and you would get all these people being you know oh, we're all about America and we love America and they're draped in the flag but also they hate the government and that really confused me when I was younger I didn't understand the cultural background to this who are these people who profess to be so profoundly American but who also seem to hate their own uh, their own government I didn't I didn't understand what that was about so I really enjoyed getting an, a, a deep dive into this and finding out what it was all about a joy is maybe a strong word it, it goes to some pretty dark places yeah I think though upon like obviously the research I've done it is quite a little bit smaller to all the reading you've done but from my findings, they didn't exactly hate the government, you know. In fact, in one of their bylaws that I read on the three presenters, they said they were pro-government, of course, that's, you got to read between the lines there. Uh, I think that they're pro-government if the government had a very skeletal legislative system. Yeah, they're libertarians, essentially. Yeah. They, they're in favour of small government. And in particular, they tend to be obsessed with the constitution they draw this distinction between you know america then and america now which i don't think i understood fully when i was younger but i'm, I'm coming around to which is they often venerate the the constitution in fact some of the more recent within the last few years recent militia activity the likes of um, of the bundies who did a when i was still living in america actually just at the beginning of 2016 when there was a uh, 2015-16 there was a standoff in Oregon at mm. a national park where a bunch of militia people led by a fellow named Bundy Cliven Bundy I believe took over a, a national park area because it was basically a f well in, in theory at least it was a feud about grazing rights which was again we, we it's all about the the obsession of the distinction between federal law and state law so the, right. the, yeah. the state law, they would say, oh, we, well, originally this all started back in Nevada. It's very complicated a few years earlier, but they would say, you know, Nevada law says we can use this land for grazing, but federal law says we can't. So we side with the state law and we don't observe the federal law. Because the constitution doesn't uh, make any difference between state law or federal law, right? The constitution's constitution. I'm not an expert on the Constitution, but certainly the interpretation of it that militia types would have, bordering bordering on the religious. And the reason I mentioned Clive and Bundy is because he he literally had a coming from a I believe it was a, an LDS point of view, a, a Mormon point of view. They had this kind of take on the Constitution that it was it was holy, you know, that it was it was brought to them by God, almost. And that any other take on it was wrong and not just like moral, not, not just ethically or um, legally wrong, but in fact, morally wrong. So that, that was huge. And, and it goes even further than that, because, of course, the militia movements were, especially in the 80s and the 90s, were very wrapped up with with a lot of racism and racist movements. And yeah. again, you have this thing called Christian identity, which was a movement which said, the, the real Israelites are the white Americans. Now, do not ask me what the torturous logic that they use is to, to justify this, but basically, yes, an actual um, Jewish people are 
you know, some sort of uh, fake imposters that are Satanists, really, which is which is nuts. But th this will this will come in very relevant to the story we're about to tell about Ruby Ridge tonight. Yeah. Anything else you came across during your your research, Ali? Tell uh, us about how you became a member of some of these organizations. <laughs> uh, it makes it sound way worse than it actually is. Well, I guess uh, to get a little bit more into what these guys are thinking about, I, I joined a couple of websites. Um, uh, two of the websites uh, joined the um, three percent, uh, the three percenters. I think it's it is. Yeah, three percenters. Yeah, the three percenters. Security force. I believe they call themselves that because they believe that um, in the American Civil War, future editing key, and obviously I mean the American Revolutionary War here. Again, they're, they're super hung up on the beginnings of America. Mm. And they, they think that, oh, back then it was pure and, and good and it's been corrupted ever since. That's one of their big tenets. They claim that about 3% of citizens at that time fought in the Revolutionary War against England. Yeah, yeah, I've read that as well. When, in fact, the, the, the true figure is probably closer to something like 15, but there you go. They were not, not, too, not too fussy about, about facts in general. So, yeah, what did you find out about the three presenters? Did they let you in? They let me... I mean, they let me in because you just register on the website. They let you register with their website. They're fucking insane, is what I learned. <laughs> you know? They are insane. Um, the leader of the three presenters for a long time was a guy called Chris Hill. Yeah. I don't know if he's still there now. Um, I think that uh, the 3% security force, from what I understood, um, it's not them, the three presenters, they ceased to be, no, it was the 3% security force, they ceased to be, as of 2019, allegedly, the three percenters distanced themselves from the 3% security force. Okay. Because um, the three percenters say that they are not a militia. Right. But there are YouTube videos to show that they are a fucking militia. Well, yeah. And they train. Like a militia. Let let's. I mean, what? Why is? Why are there militias in America? Why is is this such an American phenomena? I guess because when they were founded, you've got to go back to the founding in in the seventeen seventies. They had no standing army as such. All of their fighting was done by, you know, ordinary citizens who took up arms in the forms of militias. So they have their infamous Second Amendment saying that everybody has the right to bear arms. The the world in which that was written was one in which their freedom had been very recently won yeah. and you know that was not set in stone it was not for sure that that would last or that would be and um, that would stick around on the world stage the british of course could have come back at any time and contested it so their constitution was written at a time when they were the nation was very young and there was this fear that maybe they would become under attack very shortly by the British once again. And having no proper uh, professional army, their only um, ability to defend themselves would have been civilians acting yeah. within militias. So, I mean, think about that. The, the whole concept of militia is core to their early identity. The idea that they would be only defended by civilians banding together, training in the woods you know, with whatever weapons they've got. So when they wrote down, everybody has the right to bear arms, that was exactly the scenario that they were, that they had in mind. So that, that, that's why the whole notion of, you know, the right to bear arms and the right to have a militia is so key to them. And those are the aspects of the constitution that these people really take to heart even today. Like with that libertarianism against the government, right? 
they yeah. don't like the fact that um, uh, like the federal law really kind of uh, tells you what's what about your Second Amendment. So like the Second Amendment says, you know, every citizen has a right to bear arms. But actually, Washington tells you how you can do it. Now, that's obviously watered down in like in state law. So yeah. how easy to access them, you yeah. know. And maybe they don't like that there's become murky waters between them and their guns. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, if my very basic understanding of that, uh, of how they think, is that they would like a central government. They, they don't mind to say, they say they're pro-government. They, so they, they say wouldn't that, like a yes. central government around, just, just around the constitution. Like if they just enacted a constitution as is, as is written. Well, like, because it's like a religious doctrine for these guys. Yeah. And with, with the likes of Clive and Bundy and the sort of, um, Mormon subdivisions of militarism and, um, and militiaism. Yeah. It literally is a religious idea to them, to some of them. I, I, I wonder what would happen if they really got what they claimed they wanted. And what you've got, you've got to look at this lay dormant for a very long time and it was not necessarily a movement. It became a movement in the early nineties and again, about 2008. So what, what's happening in the early nineties is you have, well, just before Clinton comes into power, okay, 1992, you have two key elements. And the first one we're going to talk about today, you have two key incidents. And there's a siege at a place called Ruby Ridge in Idaho. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And then you have, of course, the Waco siege. So uh, Ruby Ridge is 92, right? 92. Yeah, right. So 93, you've got Bill Clinton comes in. Bill Clinton, in his time, passes... A few key pieces of legislation which do indeed water down uh, ability to access guns. So there's something called the Brady Bill, which makes it more difficult to access fire uh, handguns. And there's another piece of legislation which bans outright certain kinds of automatic weapons like AK-47s. And that. But it was after that, like when he got in, that they like they they say the Clinton era was the worst for the federal teams because of the Waco. If you're a right winger who is yeah. who's that's what the three percent say. In, this this yes. is what I found out on the website. Yes, yes. The three percent website. Yeah, so they would which have, is fucking untrue, by the way. Well, well they, no, it's true for them. They would have seen that as, as dark times. Okay, if you're if you're a gun advocate, then yeah, that was a time when the government overreached. If if you want to see it that way, and and started telling you what to do, right? So what's the difference between federal law and state law? Is, um, as we said off mic earlier, Ali, and you suggested, um. Individual states might be left or right on things, but the government will, might be telling you, from Washington, might be telling you the opposite. So you could have a, a, a red state, which is, is pro-gun, yeah. and then you will have Washington legislating otherwise on top of you. Yeah. yeah. So uh, again and again in, in, the, in the speech and the, the writings of libertarians and of the militias, they, they tend to say, oh, I will obey the, the laws of the state of Nevada, but not those of the, the feds, which is what um, Clive and Bundy would often say, for example. Yeah. So that's a little bit of a preamble. Mm-hmm. If we get into things a little bit, I'm going, to, I'm going to tell the story of Ruby Ridge in 1992, and we'll use that as a way to kind of explore how this got started, how it got re, uh, reinvigorated, and, and how it's got to where it is today. Okay, go for it. The road to Ruby Ridge. There is a man named Randy Weaver. Randy Weaver was a military man and a, a Green Beret, actually. 
Oh, yeah? Yeah. So, served his country with distinction. And he was from I- Iowa. But in the 80s, he left Iowa with his wife, Vicky, and his three kids and decided that he no longer wanted to live there. He, in fact, wanted to go and live in the wilds of northern Idaho. Now, there are various reasons for this. Um, there's a religious take on this. So Randy and his wife, Vicky, were getting into sort of apocalyptic religion, the idea that we were living in the end times and that all of the disasters that you see on TV every day, all of the famines and the floods and the political disasters were a symbol that we were coming to the end times. Well, it was the end of the Cold War, right? Yeah. That's what happened. It's, okay. it's, it's odd now. Well, we, we look back and see that as a particularly quiet time in terms of world politics. But you know what? It never seems like that to you at the time, does it? Like, uh, no. W- w- any yeah. of us living in the moment. Well, it wasn't all... like the, 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 um, the doomsday clock, like 120 seconds. Right. To midnight or something. Two minutes to midnight. Just before the yeah. Soviet Union collapses? Uh, yeah, just before. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know when uh, Randy Weaver actually goes into the woods, but... It's, it's, if yeah. it was, like, the USSR breaks up in 91. 91, so it's prior to that, yeah. yeah. So there's, there's plenty of reasons to see why somebody might be a little bit paranoid about this. But they travel around to different churches, and they try to find a church that has their take on things, and they don't, they don't quite find one. So they become a little more extreme, perhaps because of that. They're also taking in a lot of uh, conspiracy and anti-government literature at this time. They're watching videos that... Um, emphasize the UN and uh, not so much the EU, although I'm sure they would have been against that if they were bothered to think about it, but definitely the UN and NATO would be seen as these um, overarching kind of world, proto-world governments that want to control everybody. So they're watching videos where, oh, they warn you that one day, you know, the UN will come for you and they'll they'll bash in your home. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're the big boogeyman of this worldview. And some of the militia groups against that as well. Yeah, yeah like, they're, you know, they're, yeah. they're obsessed with this. And, and incredibly, yeah. with what's going to happen with what becomes known as the Ruby Ridge Siege and then Waco in 1993, we have evidence of the government doing exactly that. We have proof for what all these people believe. We have government overreach. We have cruelty. We have um, governments bursting in and, and, and killing people, basically. And that's why these stories are so interesting and why I think they need to be studied and why they bear um, bear paying a lot of attention to. So they, they up sticks in, in, the, in the 80s and they go to a, a place called Boundary County way up in the north of Idaho and they, they build their own cabin up on top of a mountain about 50 miles south of the Canadian border. Mm-hmm. So south of uh, British Columbia. I think part of the reason why I've been fascinated by this story is I would love to do that. I would love to have my You'd own... Like to be... Yeah, I'd love to be out in the wilds. And I have been lucky enough to live in, in places that are a bit like that. Um, but it would be amazing to, to go and live somewhere and build your own stuff and live off the land. Uh, it's a bit of a fantasy, but I would love to do that sometime, somehow. With your AR-15s and... Yeah, the gun stuff I'm less, <laughs> I'm less interested in. Unfortunately, a lot of the... I, I guess I come at it from a more the slightly hippie environmentalist point of view, which wouldn't it be nice if you could just, you know, provide for yourself? How would you provide for yourself up there? Well, you'd have to learn how to farm and how to hunt and stuff like that. How would you hunt? Uh, there's an, there's plenty of animals to hunt. How would you kill them? You, I mean, you'd have to have guns. 
But you don't have to fetishize guns. You sound like a prepper to me. Well, so every, from, 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 I'm, I'm not out to demonize anybody here, and I will say, so Randy Weaver, from everything I've heard, his whole family have always said to this day that um, he respected guns and he taught his family that they were a tool, Right. You use them when you have to. They're for hunting. You're a tool, mate. They're for me. They're for they're for getting your food. One of my one of my issues with America, and I, I I enjoy America. I've lived there, and I have I've learned a lot from being there. But their fetishization of weapons. Yeah, they, they do fetishize. Yeah, is yeah, right, yeah, is yeah. problematic, yeah, yeah. and and is clearly leading to problems now. And I don't know what the answer is, but do you reckon it's something I don't identify with? I must say. Do you reckon that? They don't know every amendment, but they know that one well. I, I will say an amendment is when you change something. So anyone who's that hot on the Constitution and thinks it was so perfect coming out of the womb, you know, <laughs> it didn't have the Second Amendment in it when it was made. And an amendment is a change, and you can change a change. So like uh, any, anyone who's so like, this is a primordial thing which was perfect... What they look at conception it as, and, and changing it would be well, heresy. Well, well, no, like, okay, but when it came, like, what's that? When it came out at the mm. start, it was like almost like a religious doctrine, right? Yeah. It, well, I don't believe that the founding fathers felt that way. Same they here. Were they not. were practical yeah. men. They were politicians, and they were like, "We have crafted this piece of legislation because of the time and place in which we live, and we think it's as good as we can make it." I think they were genuine guys, but people have elevated it to this like ridiculous. Mm, kind of religious place just because they don't like the way things are now and honestly I think if they were given a world run on those lines I think they'd be disappointed with it anyway right so what happened with the weavers when they were living on top of this mountain in the north of Idaho they had deliberately gone there to get away from the world right so they thought right there's this government that's overreaching let's go somewhere where they will never find us and they won't care about us and I I, you know, I can sympathize with that, right? We all get frustrated with with the system. Yep. We all get frustrated with the amount of data and information, especially today, that we have to give every time we have an interaction with, with the state or with any kind of private industry. And, you know, do you ever get the feeling you just want to jack it all in and go live in a mountain somewhere? And well, There's a couple of Vietnam vets that did that. Remember I told you, I told you about the yeah, documentary? Yeah, I watched it. But yeah, what'd you think? If Soldiers in the Woods. Soldiers in the Woods, yeah. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All these soldiers in Vietnam in the 1970s who just couldn't hack life back in the US when they came back and, and ended up living um, simple lives in the forest. Yeah, very yeah, interesting. He was growing copious amounts of weed. Yeah, <laughs> some of them were growing a lot of weed, yeah. You know, yeah, whatever gets you through. So what happened next is, is incredibly ironic. And I, I think to, to understand how the militia people frame this story, they say, here was a guy... All he wanted to do was to live quietly by himself on top of a mountain, and the feds came for him. And that's that's literally true. But let's get into the details to find out how and why, right? So, Randy Weaver and his family are living in this quiet place. They want to be left alone. But, <laughs> about not, not less than 20 miles away from them is the Aryan Nations compound. Yeah. Right? So the Aryan Nations is a super racist organization run by a fellow called uh, Richard Butler, I believe. Now, I know about the Aryan Nations primarily because they were... You're a member. Oh, not, not because I'm a member, no. <laughs> not just because. No, I burned my card, so uh, I'm definitely not a member. 
Uh, there was an old Louis Thoreau show. I think it was Weird Weekends in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. And Louis, have you seen that one? Louis Thoreau goes and hangs out with the Aryan Nations? No, I've seen a couple of the Weird Weekends, but not that one. It's a good show. <laughs> Very good show. It's on, it's on YouTube in, in, you know, in a fashion. You can watch it on YouTube. And Louis Thoreau goes and hangs out with the Aryan Nations in the 90s when they're, while they're still operational. And they have this... Ca- it's not a cabin. It's more like... It's, it's a compound in the north of Idaho. Okay, and there's a reason why these guys went to Idaho. Okay, later on we'll talk about Colonel Bogreitz. Bogreitz in the same episode of Weird Weekends, Louis Thoreau goes and hangs out with Bogreitz too, and Bogreitz sits down with Louis Thoreau and says, "Well, the reason I came up here to North Idaho is because," and he takes out a map and he says, "Like, well, I couldn't go down to Florida because you know hurricanes, and I couldn't go to uh, not hurricanes, you know, like tsunamis." I couldn't go to the Midwest because of hurricanes and I couldn't go to uh, California because of race riots. And, you know, t- he crosses out everything on the map until there's nothing left except North Idaho. When couldn't go to the Midwest because of hurricanes. Yeah. Where are they coming from? No, there's, there's hurricanes in the Midwest. Big time. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I, I lived there, man. I knew people who've been affected by it. Big thing. But where are they coming from? Like, they must obviously sweep over yeah. a bunch of the map. It's like. called Tornado Alley, yeah. So... What he's leaving out here is, is is a couple of things. One is that the the states way up there in the north of Idaho, they're a little bit lax with their laws about zoning and planning permission and all that sort of thing. So a lot of these um, people who want to get away from everything and a lot of militia types and a lot of people who want to create their own little kind of uh, libertarian utopias end up living up there. And there's legal reasons for it. It's It's not very well populated. I've been to I've been to I've been to North Idaho. I've been to Moscow in Idaho, and I've seen a little bit of what this landscape is like. And in fact, uh, I remember hearing from people that there had been a, this is terrible, but there had been problems with lynchings just a few years before I was there, and that was that was back Ooh. in two thousand and eight. Yeah, so this is rough and ready territory, and this is a bit wild west territory as well. And that's exactly what people like about it, right? America is founded on this myth of the Wild West, right? The idea that, you know, the, the rugged individualist can go out there into the landscape and just find a bit of land and take it and command it and conquer it and build on it and grow on it. And who's going to tell you that you can't do it? Like, it's, it's a romanticization yes. about the Wild West. But yes. really, how long was that in? There was 70 years before it was all yeah, over? Yeah, maybe less, yeah. From the, maybe well, less. from the 1840s, really, until the 1870s, 80s, at the most. Uh, it would, it, yeah, it, definitely 1880s but it was there, yeah. yeah. The, yeah. That, that idea has never left the American self-identity. They're obsessed with it. The rugged individualist. I will go out there and seize the land and take it and make it mine. And anyone who tells me I can't is a communist. <laughs> so there's no wonder these people ended up in, you know, the least populated, most rugged, most mountainous parts of the US, right? The likes of North Idaho. So the problem with Randy Weaver wanting to go and live his own quiet life with his family is that he was hanging out with the Aryan nations. Now, whether or not he was a racist is a big deal, okay? Because this this shows up Later on, he gets in trouble with the feds and they constantly refer to him as being a white supremacist, right? And they're worried about this because of what happened in the 80s. So in the 80s, you have for the first time, well, maybe not for the first time, but for the first time on a large scale where it's recognized by the, feder- by the feds, 
you have problems with what we would now call domestic terrorism. Mm-hmm. And now they wouldn't have recognized that term back then, but that's what we would call it now. There's a group called the Order. And the Order come out of the the Aryan nations, right? So the Aryan nations are a bit too political for them. They're a bit too slow. They're like, you know, we think Jews control everything and we want to stop that. And we think the blacks are mud races and we want to stop that. But, you know, we'll do it by voting slowly and trying to take over territory. But there's a fellow called Bob Matthews who starts a group called The Order because this is too slow for him. He wants to start the, the race war now. Right. So in the early 80s, 1983, 1984, he starts a group called The Order. And The Order, this is, this is absolutely chilling, but it's named after a book called The Turner Diaries, which is huge. Have you heard of this? Nope. The Turner Diaries, right, is a book written by a fellow from, I believe, the American Nazi Party called Pierce in the 1970s. And it's about a fictional future where this character is looking back and saying, oh, everything's so great now because we have this like all white state. Right. But it only happened because a bunch of people took up arms and fought against the Jews and the blacks and everybody back in the day. And it's about a fictional um, white supremacist organization called The Order who wage a guerrilla war against the American government. So we have here the idea, though, the American government is bad and you should fight against them if you love your race and your people. Right. So is this where they get the name from? <clears throat> yes. Right. And what do you like? Do you have like when it comes to the order, do you have their uh, the manifesto or should it, we look it up? What, what are they about? They're, they're about. Are they still around? No. Uh, the real order. No, the real order are not. No. Okay. The fictional order in the book, right? This becomes important. They or- orchestrate, despite seeming to be like a very, very small guerrilla organization. They orchestrate a hugely successful um, race war in America and then they take over the government, right? One of the things they do is they blow up the head of the FBI using a truck bomb. If that sounds familiar, that's exactly what Timothy McVeigh did in, 94, in, right? in, the, yeah, in the Oklahoma City bombing. So this was a very powerful and influential book. So we, that's in the future. But in the 80s, because the book is from the 70s, but by the 80s, this fellow Bob Matthews has taken enough inspiration to say, well, you know what? The Aryan nations aren't racist enough for me, or at least they're not acting on it fast enough. So he creates his, his own small unit called the Order, and they commit crimes to make money around California and Washington State. And they, they do a lot of holdups. They, they do robberies, they, they steal money from armoured trucks, that sort of thing. And in 1983 or four, they murder a Jewish talk show host called Alan Berg in uh, Colorado. Oh, fucking hell. Yeah. So this guy is, we, we were talking off mic earlier about like, what would a left-wing kind of Trumpian character be like? So, you know, somebody who's... Who's as brash and as as uh, populist, uh, populist and yeah. as uh, you know as 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 shocking as Trump? What would somebody like that be on the left? It's kind of hard to imagine, but this guy Alan Berg might have been that. If you've ever seen the movie Talk Radio, it's an Oliver Stone film. I've heard of it. Yeah, it's good. I watched it recently. It's good, and um, it's based loosely on the Alan Berg story. So the Order murdered him because he was this kind of shock jock who was lefty rather than... Today we think about all talk radio and shock jocks as being sort of right of centre, but uh, apparently there was some, some left of centre in those days. So 
the the order came to an ignoble end when they were indeed taken seriously by the FBI and hunted down. And Bob Matthews himself was the last man standing in a a siege or a standoff at a place called Puget Sound over in somewhere slightly west of Seattle in Washington State. And what happened was there was a big shootout where he was in this house in a, I believe, a, a remote community. And there were helicopters flying overhead and he started shooting at them and they started shooting back. And eventually they dropped a flare so they because by the time the evening came, it was difficult to see what was going on. And the flare accidentally set the house on fire. And all of the, the forces outside were expecting Matthews to come out. He never did. And, and they were shocked by this. So they, they couldn't believe that within America, within American society, there was this force who believed so powerfully in something so corrupt and so awful because um, you know he, he was effectively trying to start a race war mm. and they were shocked that he never he he stuck to his beliefs so much that he died in this fire so when we come around to ruby ridge this is exactly what the feds were worried about happening Okay, we're back after a quick break. I'm on to the Coors Light, for better or for worse. I'm on to the old number seven. Old, what's number seven? What's that? It's just JD, man. Oh, it's more JD. It? Oh, gee, you, you fooled me. You fooled me. So when we left the story last, before the break, we had uh, Randy Weaver and his family on top of the mountain in the north of Idaho. And we had talked a little bit about the order and the history of sort of militant white supremacy in the Pacific Northwest. One thing I will mention is that, aside from the fact that it was just kind of cheap and easy to buy land in the in Idaho and the Pacific Northwest at the time, there was this larger reason why militia and white supremacist groups tended to move there. They had this concept of a sort of a breakaway republic, yeah. of, a, of a sort of a white nation, that, and they, they tended to presume that it would happen in that part of America. So, they, you know, whenever they looked forward to an imaginary future when it could be, you know, this, this perfect state for them that was everything they wanted, they tended to imagine that it would happen up there in, in an area um, that was, you know, part of Idaho, part of Washington State, um, uh, sometimes part of Northern California as well, uh, and sometimes part of Washington State too. So that was um, sort of what they had in mind. When so the, again, it's not just the coincidence that so many of them ended up there. It actually had quite a an important part to play in their own ideology as well. Some people part called it the the Northern Redoubt or the Northwestern Redoubt. Is this concept of a a place where they could have a military stronghold? And you know what? It has to be said that historically, those those states were more white than not, especially compared to other areas. They were largely rural. And, and not very urban, and that played into it as well. They were traditionally places that did not attract a lot of immigration um, in, in the later 19th or 20th century, so they tended to be more white than not. So I think that played into the idea as well. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay, so yeah, we talked about the, the order and, and, and how kind of rough and violent the white supremacist movement had been at that time and the FBI of course were well aware of this so they were taking this stuff really seriously so when you had 
you know, Butler and the Aryan nations going on in Idaho, they took that stuff really seriously. So here's where I think, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to understand and to some small degree identify with, with Randy Weaver in this stuff and at least understand where he might have been coming from. But where he really loses me is when he starts hanging out with the Aryan nations. Now, he always claimed and his family to this day claimed that they were doing this socially they they wanted to make friends they wanted to meet people they were living in a very remote area and these were their most immediate neighbors yep. so they would show up at these events and it has to what be said the, the aryan nations aryan nations yeah was, yeah and yeah, it, it, yeah. it it's it's true that weaver never joined the nations and he is recorded on many occasions as saying that he was not interested in their racism um, and but he did tolerated he did put up with it and he did associate with them and that's a tough pill for me to swallow particularly you know it's a bit like saying oh you know they're fun guys so i'll just overlook their their problematic racism and it's a big it's a big thing to overlook for me what do you think what racism i totally agree i was i was actually reading <laughs> up about the <laughs> I was reading up at the aryan nations where you're talking about that yeah tell us <laughs> so what have you found about them uh well, you're right. Richard Butler was the man in charge. The yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, not much to say, really. Just they're a bunch ba- of bad dudes. Yeah, they're a bunch of bad dudes. I'm just, you know, if they're your neighbors, you know, I'm sure go hang out with them. But sooner or later, you've got to make a decision. It's just the sort of thing you want to be associated with. And unfortunately, from this point on, things just go downhill. The Weavers are damned by association over and over again so you've got the feds looking in on them at this point and saying who is this guy you know he lives up on this mountain and he's associating with um white supremacists and they are at this time for the first time in american history really you know law enforcement are taking seriously the idea that white supremacists are a serious problem and they want to do something about it so what happens is they start spying on the weavers and they start laying traps for them. And this is where things get a little dubious from the law enforcement point of view. So at this point, we're mostly dealing with um, ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, yeah. right? Yeah, it's the, like the mid-80s. They um, yes. they kind of tag on to Weaver. That's right. But it's about the time he starts sending, well, allegedly sending the letters that apparently maybe he didn't send. But So when, when was he planning around the Aryan Nations? Mid to late 80s. Early yeah. 90s, yeah. Well, I mean, early 90s, assuredly, because they came on defensive him, but before yes. this, because the, there's five years before the siege happens. Before this, I mean, he doesn't have anything serious on his record, if you like. Right. Except the fact, I mean, he's consuming... Sending letters. He's, yeah, so supposedly he sends letters to the to the president at this time, saying that he wants to... It was Reagan, wasn't it? Yeah. Wants to murder people, wants to murder Reagan. The president and the Pope and... Another person that he later sent letters saying that those were not him and they were sent by somebody else. We don't know what the truth is. Um, a lot of this, I think, might have come from Vicky as well, who was, if anything, more radical in her sort of mm. anti-government belief than, than Randy was. Like, I do... It's, it's, tough, it's tough to make a judgment here. I do believe that he was genuine in that he wanted to live his own quiet life somewhere. And where he messed up for me is that he was not careful about his associates. And he thought it was absolutely fine to hang out with people who, you know, want to start a race war. <laughs> and hey, you know, as long as you're just going for barbecues, 
<laughs> up, up in the woods in, in North Idaho, which, you know, sounds wonderful to me. I've been there. It's a lovely place and I enjoy that sort of lifestyle. But I, I can't overlook those problematic aspects the way he seems to have done. You well, know? He believed in it. He he shared a few things with them. So he linked with them because they shared an anti-authoritarian ideal, an anti-government ideal, a pro-libertarian ideal. He was it's it's he's gone on record many times as not identifying with their racism, and I I do believe that. There's no evidence that he took that seriously, that he acted on it, um, but he managed to overlook it for a long time, which is is tough for me to deal with. So that's why he came on the radar of of the feds. So the um, a what they call the I'll call it tobacco farms. The ATF start sending agents in to deal with him. So they send an undercover agent to negotiate and and to get to know him basically. So they they you know false pretenses. They lied. They sent in a spy basically. And one thing Weaver does is he when he's short of cash. He buy, he sells weapons, right? So obviously, being a rural North Idaho American, he owns several guns. And when he has a little bit of cash, he buys extra weapons. And when he's short of cash, he sells them to locals, to friends, to, to neighbors. And there's nothing wrong with that, except this government agent comes in and gets to know him under false pretenses... And asks him to sell him a firearm, a shotgun, that has been sawn off. Which is illegal. Right. Right? So they, they ask him for a sawn-off shotgun, and Weaver agrees to do this. Now, the problem is that the, the, the sting operation, the spy who's been sent in, is not wearing his wire when this conversation takes place. He's... Well, they would have been quite clunky back then. Might have been. It's not just that. No, he's he's scared at this point. He's worried about the nations and some of the people that Weaver's hanging out with, and he's very because he's very close to him. They're genuinely friendly at this point, and he's maybe having second thoughts about it. We don't know for sure, but he's not. He's he's too scared to wear his wire on certain occasions, and unfortunately, when the crucial conversation takes place, when he convinces Weaver to sell him a weapon and to saw it off first. He's not wearing the wire. So it's not known whether he suggests the idea or whether Weaver comes up with the idea. And that's kind of crucial. But it, it's entrapment by any by, any, yep. by anybody's definition. Yep, it's entrapment. It's literally yeah, yeah. entrapment. So mm-hmm. you have here the feds doing pretty dubious things to try and get this guy on site. Now, they was it before the entrapment legislation brought in? So it's before like... So you know the Fifth Amendment is you can't incriminate yourself. Right. It, right. Right, so is there legislation built around this before this happens? I don't know, um, but at the time this was considered an entrapment. I believe entrapment did exist as a concept in law. But the, basically the main thing is that... However, it's probably put into practice as... I don't know. Sort of no. water downs, so okay, I, I can't say, I can't say. Yeah, so he gets, he gets brought in on that... He gets brought into court on that case, on that, um, on that charge, right? So... He doesn't attend court because there's a mix-up. He's told the wrong date that he's supposed to go to court. Right? So this is like fuck-up upon fuck-up, right? And as I often say, you know, never suspect malice where incompetence would do the trick, right? So, But here you've got both. You've got malice in terms of they, they went out to get him. Now, they weren't trying to get him 
with the intent of just like putting him in jail because he hasn't done anything. But they thought, well, here's a guy who's close to the Aryan nations. We don't trust them. And because of what happened with the Order, we're worried about what might happen with them. Let's get a guy who's close to them who might snitch on them. And he refuses to snitch. Right. So they call him in and say, oh, we've got you now. But if you snitch on people from the Aryan nations and tell us what they're up to, we'll let you go. Now, he's not a racist and he's not a member of the Aryan nations, but he's proud enough to say, no, fuck you. I'm not doing that. Right. Was he smart enough to know that they actually hadn't anything on him? Well, I mean, they had the son of shotgun selling on him. So that was... He wasn't wearing a wire. No, but... They charged him nonetheless. Now, would he have known that he might have gotten away with it in court? I don't know. So that's what I'm asking. Like, there's no, there's no guarantee he would have gotten away with it in court. He was still. Well, I guess he wouldn't have known that he wasn't wearing a wire. The guy who was sending him to sun off to him or not. Yes, right? but Weaver didn't know that. Yeah, so yeah, Weaver didn't know that. Right? No, but th- that would have had to been given evidence in court, right? Yeah. Right. So at this point, he's he's had it. He's like, I'm not even going to court. And then they give him the wrong date anyway. And eventually what it comes down to is Weaver and his wife, right, are down in one of the local towns um, shopping or something. And two feds, right, um, alcohol, tobacco, firearms people are pretending to be stranded tourists with a broken car. Again, this is fairly underhanded stuff, but that's, I guess, what they have to do from time to time. And the Weavers stop to help them out and they're arrested and, and like thrown on the ground and treated roughly, basically. All right. Yeah, so he's sent out on bail eventually, but he's so pissed off at this point that he's like, I don't care, I'm not going to trial. And he doesn't show up at trial. And that's eventually what they get him for. Okay. Right? The, the, the whole thing with the, with the firearm and the, the sawn-off shotgun is eventually let go, right? It turns out to be not enough to incriminate him. But what they ultimately get him on is failure to attend trial. Is that what it's called, like, ruling in absentia or something? I'm not sure, but it, it's just an example of a very small thing, really, yeah. that just snowballs and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay, so you've got, you've got mess-ups and, and, and screw-ups and, and a certain amount of, of deliberate vindictiveness, I suppose. But really, just a lot of mess-ups and, and a small thing that just gets bigger and bigger. So you reckon none of this ever happened if he just showed up? Yeah, Absolutely. And the weirdest thing is that supposedly he was up in his cabins and he was stewing about this and he was angry. But he always said, and he always told his family, if they showed up, if the sheriff turned up and said, you know, Randy, can we talk about this? He'd have sat down with him and had a chat and maybe things could have been different. And that never, the way they handled this is so weird. But it was the, it was the previous um, kind of intelligence gathering beforehand. I think that's what made Yeah, him. that's, that's kind of what did him in really. Yeah. His association with, with the Aryan nation and, and I have to say he was, he was, I mean, naive is not the word. If you're hanging out with people like that after, after the stuff that had happened in the 80s with the order, you know, I mean, if, even if they share some uh, ideals with you, you can't overlook that stuff. No. No. I mean, those guys were advocating race war. So you reckon that was his undoing? I do. But also, I mean, the feds, the feds messed up a whole lot here uh, and, yeah. and are hugely yeah. to blame also. So it's a very complicated situation. So... What happens is, months go by, right? Mm-hmm. He's holed up there for something like 18 months. Okay. And eventually things start to kick off by, uh, I think it's August of 1992, when things kind of get serious. And at this point, they're being spied on, right? Can you imagine? All right, here's, here's a family who already believe the government are out to get them 
and they want to take over everybody and control everybody and they're going for walks in the in the wood they, they've gone to the only place in the country where they think we can live quietly here nobody will bother us yeah and they go for walks in the forest and they find cameras there are snipers posted all around them and they're being watched and they're being videoed and they lit they actually were you know i mean this justifies all the crazy stuff that they believe this is telling them, yeah, this stuff is true, right? So they had no visitors from the like the area nations. No, 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 not from the nations, but neither from the feds. Nobody came to their door and said, "Look, this is what we're doing. This is what's happening." Did, so did like nobody come to their door? No, they. It was it was believed. Like a, a, anyone, no, no friends, nothing. Like oh that. no, no, no. Yeah, people. Their friends were allowed to come to see them. Yes, right. So they were being. They in, eventually they didn't leave their mountaintop at all. So all of the food and things that they needed were brought to them by friends and neighbors. Okay. But the neighbors being the Aryan nation. As this, es- <laughs> as, no, not 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 just no other people too. But as as this escalated, um, the, the more and more like militarized police and people were brought in, and and they believed that they were getting involved in a, a violent situation. They were like, this guy is dangerous. He's a violent white supremacist. He, the, he carries the, the, everyone from the family carried weapons with them everywhere they went it was their own private property though right I mean they're allowed to do that yeah. they were entirely allowed to do that but all of the snipers and the military police you know uh, encamped around the mountaintop spying on them 24-7 were seeing that every time these people left the house they had firearms with them right as a, as a threat to their own life they could yeah. use whatever you know so, uh, so this escalated right you started out with the um ATF, and then it got to the, the U.S. Marshals brought in, and they were brought in specifically, being told this is a violent, potentially violent situation. You've got these crazy people who are white supremacists and they're armed, and be ready for a fight. And incredibly, they this order goes through that the usual rules of engagement are to be suspended, and it's like fire at will if you see a, I think a, an adult male member of the family. Anyone, any of them. And, and there's another... So there's three kids and a baby and two parents. And there's another another young man. I think his name is... Um, is it Randy or something? No, it's Kevin Harris. Oh, Kevin Harris. Kevin yeah, Harris yeah, is yeah, a yeah, friend. Yeah. He's like 23. He's a young fellow who's lived with them uh, from when he was younger. And he sees um, Randy Weaver as kind of like a father figure, I believe. Yeah. So there's so a... You got Ke- um, sorry. So you got Kevin Harris. Yeah. Randy Weaver. Yeah. Vicky Weaver. Vicky Weaver. Three kids. The three kids, one of them, the ten-month-old baby. Four kids, really, including the baby. Okay, right. So you got the ten-month-old baby. You've got the dog. And the dog, yeah. Uh, dog becomes one, important. The dog is quite important, actually. Yep. And you got three kids. Three so kids. Look at the three Teen, kids. Teenagers. Right. So mostly. how old are they? Well, uh, the Sarah Weaver is sixteen. Sam Weaver is fourteen. And there's another girl named Rachel. Rachel, but it's it's Sam Weaver sure. who ultimately is killed. Isn't yeah. It? So yeah, killed. one day in August, this is how it kicks off. Sam Weaver is 14 um, and Kevin Harris are going down the side of the mountain and they bump into a bunch of the US Marshals yep. who are hiding out on the side of the hill in full camo, you know, they're, they're, they're camouflaged, they've got bits of vegetation on them and they've got weapons and can you imagine what you'd be thinking if you came down your hill? Shit your pants. You would absolutely <laughs> brick it. So... The dog comes down first and starts barking, and the marshals lose it, right? Now, that, that much is for sure. What happens next is, a, is hugely contested. 
okay? The different parties have had different versions of this story from then until now. But somehow, firing starts, right? So the dog is shot immediately and dies, and there's firing going on. One of the marshals is killed. Yep. Right? Probably from Kevin Harris, but we don't know for sure. So the marshals... Um, they actually hang out on the mountaintop quite a while trying to get the body removed. I believe it was um, Deegan, I think was the name of the marshal who was killed. Was it Ed something? Was it? <clears throat> I think it was Deegan. Anyway, they don't know that anything else has happened besides this. They don't know that anybody has been shot on the Weaver side. They just know that one of their own has been killed. So it takes them quite a while to get him down the side of the mountain. It takes quite a while for support to arrive. And several days go by before they hear that anything else has happened. And this begins an 11-day siege. And at yeah. this point, the, the media of the whole country is on them. This becomes a, a flashpoint. Everybody's obsessed with this. And from there on, things just escalate. So the numbers of military police uh, just get bigger and bigger and bigger until at the bottom of the mountain, you've got hundreds of people. You've got helicopters, armoured cars, um, entire encampments of soldiers. It's crazy. Right, this is all for one family. It's utterly unbelievable stuff. Was this the first like really siege? Was it? I think this is the first time when Americans see their own government have you know taking out their own people. At least that's how it's portrayed. As we've seen, it's a little more complicated than that. The origins of it have a little back and forth. You've got wrongdoing, I think, on both sides. But yeah, that's kind of how it starts. The very next day, there's another tragedy. So the very next day, Randy Weaver and Kevin Harris decide to leave the main cabin where they've been hiding and go to an outhouse building, which is where Sam's body has been stored, right? Yeah. And they, want, they just want to see him. This is, I think, an understandable emotional reaction. And as soon as they go out there, there's more shooting, right, from snipers in the surrounding hills. And Kevin Harris is hit. And on the way back into the main building... The wife, Vicky Weaver, is in the main doorway holding the baby. Elishaba, I think, was the kid's name. And the sisters are there as well. And more shooting ensues. And again, they don't really know that much has happened. They've just been shooting because they've seen these males with guns moving around. And they've been instructed that they are to open fire on any armed males that they see moving and leaving the main cabin. So, But they don't know that anything else has happened at this point. And a few days later, a, um, a vehicle is sent up towards the top of the... An armoured vehicle is sent up towards the top of the mountain and approaches this outhouse. And what do they find on the inside? The, the body of 14-year-old uh, Sam Weaver. So they know, oh, we fucked this up. <laughs> yeah, and, and they've, been, they've been trying to negotiate. You know, they've had... Um, negotiators on bullhorns trying to talk to the weavers and say hey it's okay we're your friends and now they realize that they've murdered one of them and shit hits the fan at the, by this point there is a a mass of protesters at the bottom of the mountain there's a uh, every time the uh, the soldiers go in and out they're being screamed at by hundreds of people who are now calling them baby killers and yeah and and this, all right wingers though. Well, yeah. well, well. This starts out as neighbors, who are like, "Why the hell are hundreds of military people showing up with all this hardware and, and machinery and weapons, 
you know, to, to come down on this family. What, what's that about? Which, why, would they, why would they show baby killers at them? Well, because they found out that they'd killed, they'd killed one of the kids. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, so, but, but this, this turns. People start coming from all over the country and with different motivations. So if you're someone who lives in that area and you're shocked by this, I understand that, right? Why the hell are the government coming in with all this, you know, military hardware to rain destruction down on some random family? That seems insane. But sure enough, the skinheads and the racists come as well. And you can see from videos of this time and all the placards people are holding, people are declaring what Randy Weaver becomes a kind of a folk hero. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it is is racially motivated. You see a lot of signs saying, "Oh, he's a great white American," and you know, let's let's emphasize the racial aspect of it. And the government are out to get him because he he's he cares about his race. And you know, I'm going to say that these people are not in there for the right reasons. Does that sound fair? Uh, yes, hundred percent. So days go by and they're not getting anywhere. They're sending negotiators up there saying, hey, Randy, we want to talk to you. Vicky, we want to talk to you. They understand that Vicky is the brains of the operation. She seems to be a bigger character than him and more, um, more, more I guess, more headstrong. And uh, it's always been reported that he, he, he follows her lead, shall we say. And then they start getting phone calls from a guy called Colonel Bo Gritz. Future editing key in here. This character's name, of course, is Bo Greitz. Uh, however, being as I was reading about this guy for years before I ever heard his name pronounced, uh, I did spend years in my head calling him Bo Gritz. Uh, occasionally on this episode, my memory slips me up and I may pronounce it incorrectly. Please bear with me. You've seen this on TV. Uh, Ali, what do we know about Colonel Bo Gritz? You've been researching this fellow. Big, big name in right-wing uh, militia movement stuff, right? Yeah, um, you know, 22 years in the military. Yep. It, uh, you know, to be fair to him, um, he was Special Forces. Uh, Green Beret. Green Beret, yeah. Genuine American hero. Yep, served from 57 to 79. So Vietnam vet. Vietnam, yeah. But, Supposedly but, the uh, model for uh, John Rambo. <laughs> I, I wonder about this I wonder about this because <laughs> yeah, yeah. everyone says it's Rambo 2 it's Rambo 2 any, about yeah her. the second one yeah, rather yeah. but anytime you you read up about this guy it's like oh yeah he was the model for Rambo I kind of wonder when was the Rambo novel written oh no, no it's Rambo 2 no it's Rambo 2 actually no, there's no novel for that yeah, for no there's no novel for Rambo 2 nobody how could anybody <laughs> um, he I just wonder is this something he just made up himself and everyone has just taken his word for, or is it? I think what 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 I read is that, you know, after he left the military, he wanted to go back in, yeah. uh, into Asia or wherever the, he was POW. So he was a there. proponent of the uh, the the supposed missing missing POWs, POWs yeah. in Vietnam, right in so, the eighties, yes. And he was like, yeah. I'm gonna go find him. We're gonna go find him. Yeah. And um, again, the, again, the anti-government stuff, really, isn't it? Like the, the suspicion, the post-Watergate kind of, we no longer trust our government. They let us down in Vietnam. They wouldn't let us win. And not only that, but actually, it turns out there's a whole load of guys still out there, but the government doesn't want to admit it because that would be politically awkward. Right. Yeah. So instead of well, I guess he went out there on his own to try and, he says. No, he he went. He went. Uh, to, well, I guess he went on holiday to Asia, but he certainly didn't go <laughs> off like find, trying to find fucking POWs. Colonel Bogreitz is a is a tough 
guy to read because he's such a self-promoter. He is, yes. And he's such a a glory hog and a media hog. It's really hard to know how seriously to take him. He, He genuinely has done a lot of fascinating stuff. Like, there's no question he was a highly decorated Vietnam vet. There's no question he was sent, he was cherry-picked by the military to go to Panama in the 80s and carry out, like, top-secret missions there. And he, he, he then trained the Mujahideen in the 80s, which obviously became problematic later. But he just talks so much bullshit as well. And he hypes himself up so much. It's just hard to know what to believe. Yeah, I mean, what do you want to say? Like, I, I think, like, the P.O.W. thing is total bullshit. <laughs> I think, yeah. And, like, the Largely, thing is, like, it's it, been shown to have been nonsense, yeah. He could have gone out there, really, right, to do his fake search for these P.O.W.s. Well, but I don't think... the family's hope. Right? I don't think... And then I, he's just... He's just... I don't think there was anything so, fake about it from his point of view. I think... So you reckon he believes what he's saying? I think he's genuine, yes. I think he's a bit nuts. But I think he's genuine. Genuine in that, like, he, he believes, believes what he's saying. I think he's wrong. Right. But I think he believes it. Which is different. I don't think he's a con man, but I think he's a blowhard. Yeah, he is. Uh, yeah, he does come across as a bit of a blowhard. There's a, there's I've seen a... the first Spike training video. Yeah, so <laughs> tell, tell us about those. Uh, well, I've just watched the one before. I wanted to throw myself at the fucking window. But, um... I... What is it? What's the Spike training video, Alec? It is him saying, the first one is literally him saying, yeah, I commanded this, I commanded that, I can speak fluent Chinese, I can speak fluent Swahili, um, I can certainly get you up to, you know, up to speed of what you need to know to survive out there, yeah? Yeah. That's all. Well, when he was in I, Vietnam... I didn't actually get the other... There was apparently 10 of them. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't see the other nine. You know, I just... Well, you I, didn't I, want I, to pay, like... Offer. You didn't want <laughs> to pay 99 for... No. <laughs> when he was doing his, like, return to Vietnam, find the vets thing, find the POWs mission, which he he, he didn't find any POWs, unfortunately. He, do you know he was sponsored by... <laughs> he was sponsored by Clint Eastwood and William Shatner... No, I Clint Eastwood gave him thirty grand, and William Shatner gave him ten grand to to do his like go back to Vietnam and find the POWs thing. It's disappointing that Clint Eastwood would do that, but, but I not can surprising. Fully believe that William Shatner would do it. Well, Shatner is not a dope. Shatner was like, no man, I just gave him the the ten grand for the rights to his life in case I could you know make a movie out of it or something. Yeah, you took that money, went to Vietnam, you know, whatever. <laughs> so he didn't find any POWs, surprise, surprise, spoilers. But he he did get some interesting interviews with a then famous Vietnamese drug baron who was supposedly supplying the US with massive amounts of heroin who told him that actually the CIA were facilitating this trade. And he completely lost his trust in the U.S. because of this. This is his version of the story anyway. Now, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know that this has ever been proven, but the CIA are pretty damn shady. They've done a lot of rotten stuff, and I wouldn't be surprised. But he then went hard down the far-right conspiracy anti-government route, and that's where those Spike videos come in, because Spike videos are him training you, the average American, to fight against, basically, the government. 
you all kind of prepare for it. Prepare so our, it's our the first prepper video, right? Yeah, it's a prepper thing. It's yeah. it's like what if you know the big fight finally comes, whether it's a race war or a fight against the government or some other kind of catastrophe. Apocalypse. Well, yeah, you were telling me that like some of the contemporary militias tend to rebrand themselves as, "Hey, we're just preparing you for the zombie apocalypse." The three percenters. Is that what they do now? Yeah, yeah, they've got um, the three percenters one's quite interesting actually because they've got their bylaws which is about 43 pages long. <laughs> and, like, in the three percenters, they say, like, we are um, not anti-government, we're pro-government, as long as they abide by the Constitution. So, not they wouldn't consider any current governments to be... There you go, right? <laughs> and they say, like, you know, we are, all, we are not militia. But... but kind of militia. We are. <laughs> but they also, like, very weirdly in the bylaws, you know... Um, they have stuff like, oh, you know, we've got disciplinaries, you know, members who are like racist or, or this and that. Never mention homophobic, by the way. Right. Um, just oh, racist and this, you know, if you're this, you're that. Um, if you practice any hate speech, we'll kick you out. Right. Interesting. Yeah, we'll give you a warning. Right. And then the second disciplinary is you're expelled. Interesting. And um, if you're a part of the 3% security force... Uh, then you'll be expelled. So the three percenters and the three percent security force are separate because they want distance of um, a guy called Chris Hill, who founded the security force. Right. Um, they say like, yeah, they keep on saying we're not a militia. You know, they're more preppers. And in the end of their bylaws, <laughs> that's where the prepper shit comes in, right? So they they tell you the hierarchy, they tell you their administrative leave between like you know the the top guys. And they say, like, okay, so we don't have any, um, we're not a military force, so we don't have, like, uh, privates or colonels. We have leaders and some other term I can't remember now, but essentially it's, there is a hierarchy there. And at the very end, it's like, also, you know, zombie apocalypse. And we, we know that sounds crazy, but it has some merit, you know. <laughs> and, like, and then the rest of it just reads like Robert Kirkman, you know. <laughs> like... Hmm, where have I seen this before? <laughs> All right, so to get back to uh, to bug rights, I guess. Um, <laughs> the bill of rights. The bill of rights. I think no, that's that's what did what did he call himself? He called uh, uh, God guns. God and guns and rights was what yeah. he was was his slogan when he was going for president. So, you know what? This whole thing with like, oh hey, we're not racist. Uh, no, that's really relevant because I think a lot of militias today are probably very deeply aware of the close association the militia movement had with white supremacy. He was a proponent of yeah. racial segregation. All through right. the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. Um, and probably they're being a little bit careful now with what kind of language they use. Because Greitz always, even in the 80s and 90s, in his Spike videos, he says, I don't care who you are, you're going to come and train for me. Um, you know, I don't care if you're white or black or brown or yellow or whatever. If you're an American, that's all that matters. I only care about Americans. And again, you've got this like, we love America, we love the Constitution, but, you know, fuck the government. That weird dichotomy that I'm, I'm still trying to understand. But that's hugely relevant because then, you know, by the time he shows up on the Ruby Ridge story, he's running for president associated with the well, populist he, party he is, yeah, well, he, well, alongside he, yeah, david yeah. duke yeah yeah now 
he has always maintained that he oh he didn't know that David Duke was going to be on the ticket, and that happened later. And he was con- he was convinced that oh you know they weren't going to emphasize the racial stuff. He came off the ticket though, and he did come yeah. off the ticket. We have to we do have to say that. So, you know, it's complicated. Was he a racist? Well, maybe sometimes when it suited him politically, he would align himself with people who were. If but then adv- other times when it wasn't appropriate, he didn't. If he advocated for racial segregation. No, he didn't. No, he did. I don't believe that he did. But he did. What would you? He where would did. You have su- seen that. He did support. From what I read, he was a proponent of it. Like. I've not come no, across he, that. Where did you he, come across he that? He was reading a book or but earlier on, um, or a passage where he was like, it looks, it said like he was a proponent of racial segregation, right? Him, um, in that he thought that it should be down to the states to make their own laws about segregation. But that that's classic. Um, that's classic libertarian theory, isn't it? That's like, if you were, I'm to, not going to say anything about racism. You know, it's it's an individual choice because I'm so libertarian. That should be federal, though. But they don't believe anything should be federal. You know that. Yeah, they don't. Yeah. That's mm. that. That would be their. Ex- I'm not. I'm not defending him. I'm just saying that would be their excuse for it. One thing he he has supported, which is pretty awful, is like all of these conspiracy theories about all oh, the globalists, which is like total Alex Jones stuff nowadays. But he would have been into that back in the day. They. Sooner or later, it's about the Jews. <laughs> you know, whenever you start talking about, oh, there's some like tiny cabal of people who control everything, it, things get anti-Semitic sooner or later. And he's he's gone there. I read something, though, that he'd married his later wife and he'd become a bit more moderate in that um, Judo-Christianity stuff. Yeah. I, I'd, re- I'd read something about that. He, he was not Christian identity, I will say that. So he was not into that sort of... You know, Jews are the the devil, and actual Israelites are white Americans. He wasn't into that, at least on paper. So he's not the worst of the worst, but he did associate with some of the worst of the worst. <laughs> right. So we'll get back to the Ruby Ridge story. Right. By the time he shows up at Ruby Ridge, he is going for president. And he's a bit of a hero, a bit of a darling on the on the right wing side, but the FBI, who at this point have been called in, so we're like we've had uh, alcohol, tobacco, firearms. They've been superseded by U.S. Marshals, and now we have the FBI coming in. This is how crazy Ruby Ridge has gotten, and they're getting phone calls from Colonel Bogue, right, saying I should be there, I should be there, and they don't really want him because he's a bit of a loose cannon, he's a bit unpredictable, he's a bit of a bit of a mentalist. And at some point, they decide, well, maybe this is the kind of guy Randy Weaver would listen to. Because it's on record that Weaver looks up to this guy as, a, as an individualist, as a, a militiaman, as a... Well, he's not a militiaman, technically, but, you know, he's an idol to the militia, eventually. And what happens is, they phone up, they eventually phone back Colonel Bog writes and say, would you record a message that we can play out to Randy Weaver telling him to come down? And Bogart says, yeah, sure. So they turn on the recorder and he says, Randy Weaver, this is Bogart. I'm going to be over there to you. I'll be on the next plane. (laughs) And the the FBI are like, oh, man, that's not what we wanted at all. (laughs) But that's 100% Bogart, right? So he shows up the next day 
and he basically bullies his way to the front of all of the all of the military police and incredibly he i mean he's an incredible personality right yeah. he's a big big blustery bear of a man and he gets what he wants and he he fights his way to the front and incredibly because they're having no luck you know talking randy weaver down he end up he ends up saying something to them like you know they're like who are you and he's like i'm bogrites like who, who are you to be here he's like well you're not having any luck getting him down from there are you so he, <laughs> he can talk to me <laughs> and did he, he get the same was he held in the same esteem in the area it well not by the not by the, the military, FBI, right? not by the fbi but by, by this point the thing he was most known for was his 1980s go back to vietnam and find the vets but not actually find the vets thing mm, yeah, so yeah. but the to the right wingers he was a bit of a hero yeah so he goes up to the cabin and asks them to come out and they do and they talk to him and he goes in and then he talks to them and he he he, he makes i have to say he makes progress where nobody else had as much of a jackass as i think he is he was the right man at the right time you know and uh, weaver and and his family did have respect for him and he works slowly he he brings up a neighbor with him uh, a woman that they know and gets talking to them and the first thing he does is he manages to get the body of the son out of there right yeah and then he manages to get uh, the young man who was injured uh, kevin harris he gets him out of there because apparently he's close to death at this point so it gets them taken down and then eventually or well, the first time he comes down and he talks to the fbi and they're like you know what's it like up there and he says to them you guys fucked up because then he lets them find out that vicky has been killed and they didn't know this the mother has been shot so earlier a few days earlier when they were shooting at randy and kevin and they were going back into the cabin yeah. and the mother was standing in the door with the daughter she was shot in the head in front of her daughter that's fucked up yeah it's it's the most messed up part of the whole story i guess and and the whole time they had been you know yelling at them through bullhorn saying hey vicky you know come and talk to us and she was dead and they weren't answering and you know there's plenty of evidence to show that okay the fbi fucked up but they weren't monsters they were absolutely horrified by this they didn't realize that this is the way things had turned out but over over a few days colonel bogreitz gets them all out of there at that point and he eventually convinces weaver he brings the body of vicky down according to him the way he tells it the girls are all wailing and they say to him don't let her body touch the ground and he's like i carried her all the way down without you always have to take everything he says with a pinch of salt right yeah just because he's such a he's a really good storyteller but i don't know something you know every story is a designed to big himself up you know so he gets them down out of there and um you know obviously they're arrested and taken away and that's kind of the end of it that's really the biggest moment in his life i think the most successful high point of colonel bo Grice's life but that's the end of the 11-day siege of ruby ridge and the family are taken down and what happens in the, in the long term is that randy weaver is given i think six months in prison for all of this and by the time they get down to the bottom they they cannot believe the amount of military, you know, manpower and hardware that's been brought against them. Hundreds of yeah, yeah. soldiers, 
militarized police, FBI, helicopters, armored cars. It seems unreal. It was that um, uh, made-for-TV film with Randy Quaid as Randy, by the way. <laughs> I fucking knew it. You know, <laughs> saw the clip earlier. I was like, that is fucking Randy Quaid. And, and, yeah, I know they, they make a thing in the film about like all this for just for one family. Yeah, yeah. But it's true. Yeah. And I know it's it's a silly film, but that's what happened. It's it's it is kind of surreal, and the long term consequences are that they win a, they win a lawsuit eventually the the children, and they're given a million million and something, and they all buy you know they buy property in Montana and places like that. They live okay. The, the surviving kids do well. Randy Weaver, as far as I know, he's still alive. Okay. He's not. Do you know what? There are so many documentaries about this where um, Sarah Weaver, the the kid. And Randy Weaver go back to the hill and just talk about it. And they seem pretty content to to go through the motions and talk about what happened. They don't seem overly... They're, they're not shy Sarah about Weaver it. Weaver is the, the 10 daughter. No, no, no. She was the 16-year-old daughter at the time. Right. So, yeah. But, but this becomes the first key point that ignites the militia movement. So right. it's not fair to call uh, Randy Weaver a militia man himself, but he inspires a movement. Yeah. People look at this all over the country and say, right, this is an example of an overreaching government out to get us. They sent in all this crazy amounts of, you know, tech and people after a single family. Well, well, with the... What are they going to do to us? With the reporting on it, right, you know, and the, um, the shitstorm mm. around the fuck-ups with the feds, U.S. Marshals, U.S. Marshal being killed, um, Vicky Weaver being killed, yeah. the son being killed. Yeah, you know it raised all all this bullshit up that 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 gave them kind of um, legitimacy. Legitimacy, legit- yeah. And and right. I mean I can't argue with it to a degree. If you don't know the story behind it, and you don't understand all the twists and turns, all of the you know certain aspects of genuine genuine vindictiveness, but also certain aspects of just fuck ups that led to this. You've got a, a, clear, a, a clear situation where the government just go in and take out an innocent family who on all they wanted to do was live by themselves on top of this mountain and they're taken out. And well, they acted on fuck up after fuck up, right? Yeah. Yeah. So was it a proportionate response? No, it was absolutely a disproportionate response. And, and people from the FBI were suitably taken out. The, the, the yeah. second... the we'll second prison. Yeah, second in command was taken down. Certain officers went to prison. You know what? It's never going to be enough, is it? For the people who were affected by this, those reprimands are never going to be enough. But that that gave, like you're saying, the legitimacy to the to, rise of the. They did. The FBI did change. The they changed its methods. The most obvious thing was the the order about shooting on site. That got changed forever now. And often mentioned in this story is that. Um, similar cases that have happened since were diffused without that kind of violence. So there's a case in somewhere in Texas with a guy who was having a similar standoff and they never sent anybody in after him, but he can't leave either. So he's been there for 15 years. So wait a second. With the US Marshals, <laughs> yes. was it um, a legal shoot? I don't know exactly when that rule was brought in, but I think it might have been that early, yes. Right. Okay. So... Then talking about the militias give rise to because they've obviously seen loads and loads of fucking response coming in to six people in the cabin. 
was yeah. 10 month old yeah so things really took off very shortly after this uh, which we might talk about in our next episode you have by 1993 you have the Waco siege which is like the one two punch of Ruby Ridge and Waco really ignites this movement and that's what we're going to be talking about next mm-hmm. so we might leave things there it's been a pretty long episode yeah fuck hell I mean yes <laughs> <laughs> uh, just while we're talking Ali anything people should know about the, the Scots and uh, what uh, how they can catch up with things you're doing we're on Spotify go on Spotify and um, uh, YouTube Google Play I'll put all the links in the show notes. Yeah. Great. Uh, thanks for talking to us t- this evening, Ali. Oh, thanks a lot, man. Sure, we'll be back soon to talk about similar things. Uh, I guess part two of this, right? Yeah, we'll do a part we, we, two. We haven't even touched on the American militias. We just talked about Ruby Ridge, which is a great story. <laughs> but I brought all these notes, you know, I wrote at least 10 words on my list here. You wrote Bo- Bogart's down. We did talk about him. Uh, Chris Hill. Oh, we spoilers. mentioned him. Spoilers. We did mention them. All right. Well, the Oath Keepers. Oh, oh the yeah. Oath Keepers we haven't next. mentioned them oh, yet. Oh, yeah, yeah. So let, let that be a tantalizing, uh, <laughs> uh, tantalizing morsel to keep you uh, on, the, on the line for the next episode. We grouped around, Randy, our defendant, to protect our rights to our Second Amendment. We pushed in with our walls and borders. We hit out against the New World Order. ATF. FBI, Marshals versus you and I. ATF, FBI, Marshals versus you and I. Weaver in out, Weaver in in. We don't need no central government. Weaver in out, Weaver in. We create the 3%. You've been listening to White Atlantic Weird. I'm Kian, and all the usual stuff applies for the end of the episode. That means please review wherever it is that you listen to your podcast if you write something funny or interesting on the review we'll read it out on the show also if you have any strange stories about weird beliefs political or otherwise or if you've ever met mr colonel bogreitz or maybe if you are colonel bogreitz please 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 get in touch with us and once and for all please spread the episodes that you like with anyone who you think might enjoy them thanks for listening We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.